The World According to Gorf. Hi, everybody. This is Gorf, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, your host of The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. Coming to you from Los Angeles, where I had the privilege of hosting a panel at the Los Angeles Stan Lee Kamikaze Entertainment Convention entitled Race and Diversity in Entertainment. I sat in the middle of a long table of panelists, and in fact, it wasn't even long enough to accommodate all the wonderful panelists that we had who come from myriad different backgrounds, both personally and professionally, and had a lot to say about the state of entertainment and race and diversity. I apologize in advance for the relatively low fidelity of the following show. I've done my best to clarify and raise volumes. I assure you nonetheless that it is worthwhile listening to what they have to say. Here we go. I want to welcome everybody to a panel that we are calling Race and Diversity in Entertainment. So we're going to cover as much as we can. I've invited so many people to join us today to make sure that we were covered with all sorts of different perspectives. So I want to go down the row right now. We'll start with Joyce at, um, to my left. And I want everybody to give a 30-second introduction of who they are. Uh, my name is Joyce Chin. I've been working in comics since about the mid-90s. Um, I started out at DC Comics penciling stuff and currently doing cover work, just Marvel, DC, Dynamite, pretty much whoever will hire me. Um, when I first started in comics, it was just me and Amanda Condor working in superhero comics as pencilers and barely any female editors. And it was at San Diego Comic-Con, I remember for years when I walked in, I knew I was the only person to ever go into that bathroom for the entire convention, uh, there were no women. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Ali Mauji. I'm an actor on Silicon Valley on HBO, and um, I've done a lot of theater, and I moved out here a few years ago for grad school for my MFA in acting, and I've been, made that transition from theater to TV and film. I'm Leo Partible. I am a screenwriter and a content creator. I used to be a film exec. I've also worked in animation. Uh, and uh, my, actually my brother is actually an animator. He created a show called Johnny Bravo. And um, so, uh, I'm Gore from the former editor of Batman Comics. I have a new project out, a graphic novel called Michael Midas Champion. I urge all of you to go to MichaelMidasChampion.com and follow us because it's a great book. And then you can hear about all the cool projects that I'm into in music and television and graphic novels and all that. And uh, I will hand it off to... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, my name is Abdul Rashid, uh, CEO and founder of HR Visions. Um, you see we are a transmedia-based, uh, transmedia studio based in uh, Ohio. Uh, we are proponents and spirit, uh, proponents for diversity, indoctrination of uh, characters uh, who do not fit the traditional blueprint of uh, what the uh, archetype superhero protagonist or antagonist should be. Um, we're fortunate enough to be doing properties with uh, Cherry Cruz, Public Enemy right now, as well, and uh, a few other creator-owned uh, uh, celebrity-based properties and creator-owned titles right now. Um, I've done work with uh, Marvel-based uh, properties, um, uh, just distributed properties and everything, but I've been 
uh, interested in doing creative work, storytelling work in the comic industry for some time, and then uh, make, take the initiative to do transmedia works in comics, uh, television, well, animation, films, gaming, so on and so forth, to tell a continuous story on all different varied media platforms. And so we just started about a year and a half ago, and you know, here we are. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Ashley. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay, cool. So my name is Ashley A. Woods, and I'm currently working on the uh, Niobe book with Mandela Stanford and Stranger Comics. And I started out working uh, independently in comics 11 years ago, self-publishing a title called Millennial War, which is an action fantasy story. Um, I grew up uh, playing lots of video games. I'm a gamer to this day. Um, that's taking the back seat because of art. Uh, sadly, but I still try to hold on to it. I don't want to grow up, as Jordan was saying. I just want to hold on to my childhood forever. And I just want to thank everybody for coming. And nice meeting everyone down here and down here. So just thank you guys. Okay. Uh, top of that, my goodness. Uh, my name is Rafael Navarro. I, uh, I, um, I work both in animation and uh, uh, comics. Uh, my first love has always been comics, of course, and wow, they come with a soundtrack, too. Cool. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, comic-related, I, I started out as a Marvel DC penciler, you know, basically working uh, my way to a, a, a hopefully a, a monthly comic title. Then, um, then I get a real uh, day job, job type job, and, and because I live in Los Angeles, I, I decided to go to the glamorous world of animation. I've been working in the animation industry for almost, uh, oh gosh, like 25, 20 about 26 years. Oh gosh, I'm old. And um, uh, but my first love, like I said, is still comic books. So I, I still go out of my way to do something, anything, either for Marvel or DC, little, as small as the project as, may, as it may be. Or of lately, my most recent monsters of late. Uh, I've been. I've, I'm also known as a, a as an indie publisher for a book called Sonambulos, as mass Mexican wrestler detective. <laughs> and uh, most recently, I've been doing this book with a, with a co conspirator uh, named Michael Lohman, and uh, the book is called Guns Ablaze, and it's a uh, science fiction western, time travel and trouble, <laughs> hilarity, and speaking of hilarity, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to live up to that. Uh, my name is Barry Deutsch, I'm primarily known for uh, doing a series of graphic novels called Hereville, about an 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girl who wants to fight monsters, <laughs> and you are. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Phil Lamar. Um, I'm, uh, he doesn't get a chair, but he gets a floor. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, I feel bad for this one. I'm, no, I'm good. <laughs> I've been sitting down all day. Uh, I'm a comic reader um, since I could read, um, and been in entertainment almost as long. Um, and uh, as far as diversity in entertainment, I got a little skin in that game. <laughs> um, because without that, I can't pay my mortgage. Uh, Don't give us an example. Be more, let's start with you. Be more specific. When you say you have skin in that game. I'm black. <laughs> what? what? I'm in, in entertainment. <laughs> That's about it. If, if, if there is no diversity, there is no me. Uh, well, no. Because the point is... Um, as a comic book reader, as uh, a consumer of television, movies, you know, I've searched, I mean, I'm 48, so I've been watching and taking things in, you know, comic books, when I started reading them, there, there was nothing. There was nothing mirroring me, uh, except for the occasional 
you know, what I was always called the 70s uh, comic book version of the social problem movies from the 50s. Blaxploitation films. Yep. yep. No, 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 no. <laughs> Before that, the, 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 the off Poitiers movies. Ah, there we go. You know, uh, Blackboard Jungle. <laughs> you know, we're looking at these problems. We're very aware that there is something wrong in society. So that's why we have Black Goliath. <laughs> See? There's one. Right. Um, and of course, in comics, I'm Black Lightning. <laughs> you know, I am so torn about Black Lightning. Right? <laughs> I had to put that on stage. Because he's got possible. the black, <laughs> and which makes him just, I mean, Black Panther works, because right. there are actually things called Black Panthers. <laughs> there isn't any Black Lightning, you know. But all, but... The, the thing with the, the afro attached to the mask was brilliant. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, he all of a sudden it's like, I'm uh, assimilated. Or am I? <laughs> you know? But, no, I... Um, also, I studied uh, with the Groundlings, uh, an improv and sketch comedy theater in L.A. And there has been, I don't, I don't know if anybody saw this, a couple of uh, about a month ago, there was an article um, a woman wrote, I think on Huffington Post, as a student, a black woman who was a student at uh, UCB, the improv uh, company in New York, and she said they have a diversity problem. Um, and that echoed for those of us in LA with the Groundlings. Um, it's an improv company that I was a member of from 1992 to 1998, and since 2000, it's a company of 30 people. Not a single person of color has been voted into the company in the last 15 years. Wow. Oh, my. There you go. And we've been having a lot of discussions about, is that a problem? Everyone says, yes, yes, that's a problem. Like, why? And I, talked, I sat down with the company, the, the what is currently all-white company, and I, said, and I asked them that. Why? Why is it a problem? And I think that's true of most entertainment uh, avenues. Why is diversity a problem? Oh, quick question, because like you've opened up and everything, asked like, are we into the discussion now? Yes. Yeah, I'm so sorry. No, I just no, no, no. we got to the end. No, 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 no. I just no, no. I just no. left right in here. We are. No, I, it's funny you should say that. Um, By the way, please identify who you are when I you speak, so everybody remembers. Okay. But yes, uh, this uh, Abdul Rashid uh, with AHR Visions. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. There was one thing, I was having a discussion once uh, just recently, actually just a couple days ago, where someone was asked, talking about the, the you know, racial issues. I said, the reason we're making race an issue is because we're identifying it as such an issue. It doesn't have to be one. Here's the thing. If you indoctrinate characters or talk about it without it being a dynamic of issues, I, I have a very diverse background in terms of the people who I hang around my life, who I am. Fortunately, and uh, I've, I've made it a point to say, like, when it becomes an issue, is because we're stressing it as such. We eliminate the dynamic of racial issues because we talk about it as such, as a regular dynamic. I can speak with Raphael. I can speak with Ashley. I can speak with uh, this guy. <laughs> By the way, you, 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 no problem. You, you think I, I, I have the look at Jordan? I, I took notes. I, I let myself off. So he's looking at it going, where is he? He's, he's not Ashley. He's not Raphael. Who is he? Um, you can call me Gorf, which is frog backwards. Is my nickname. All right, Gorf. I like Gorf. And uh, and the thing is, is that like uh, when we acknowledge people going off of their merit, off of what they, because here's the thing. 
bad, bad or good or bad, you know, this, that, and the other. It, it, when we stop and really think about it, it's a matter of the merit of the person. It's not the color of their skin or what have you. And I sound like a cliche after school special, but here's the thing. <laughs> the, the, it's so true. You know, when we go off, I, I, here it is. I'm 280-pound black African-American Muslim uh, in post uh, post to uh, 9/11 America. Right. All right. I couldn't be any more dangerous in your room. <laughs> you know, just the second I walk in and everything, and I don't look that happy. So the thing is, is that you know, like when I walk in and everything, people automatically get on you know, get on French because like it's a matter of my presence, which I know, and I do it purposely. Should I be afraid to sit next to you? Yes, you should. Because I have a bomb somewhere. The thing is, is that you know, the, here, here's the thing. You know, if the more we approach this, and I'm glad we're able to take this, you know, levity, because for all intents and purposes, it's a ridiculous dynamic. The fact is an issue. Here, that's why I love coming to environments like this. We're focused on the art. We're focused on the, 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 the enjoyment, of a common enjoyment here. So we're making this into an issue because, you know, everybody else is making it into an issue where it doesn't have to be. Well, let me try to crystallize this a little bit. The issue, as I'm seeing it, and by the way, uh, as by way of introduction, you may be asking, so it's a diversity panel, why is the moderator the white Jewish guy? And no one's ever oppressed the Jews. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joyce, your check is in the mail. <laughs> right, I, and I thought that would be the most pressing question today. It turns out, no, there's a more pressing question, which is, is my parking validated? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the real issue here is, do we want in 2015 to make diversity something that we should be pursuing because it reflects the real world more, because it's what the audience demands on the business side, or should we be looking at it more from the perspective of we're post-racial, and we should be balanced enough to say, you know what, if the most talented person that comes into the audition room happens to be white for 15 years in a row, then those are the people that we're taking. So, I just doubt which that way is it? Go ahead. Case. I really doubt that it was the case that Turn nobody the mic of, for you, Joyce. I doubt that it was the case that no one of any other color than white happened to make auditions. It's kind of like the whole, uh, it's... I, I don't know. I mean, I know well, see, people that, that's, that's, that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I just, I, I, I know plenty of intentionally funny Asians. <laughs> there are lots of unintentionally funny Asians. And, you know, Indian people and Mexican people, and, you know, there's, like, legendarily famous black comedians. Well, Joyce, address the question people. specifically. Do you feel, then, that there should be uh, an enforced racial diversity? Oh, no, I don't think it's that. I think they need to switch up who's doing the hiring or who's doing the casting. I think um, they also need to write, write more for, for those, those diverse actors and, and create those characters. But because we run, into that problem, we run into that problem in comics, too. Do you write for diversity, or do you just write a character who happens to be? Right? I mean, well, like that, you're in a show where you I just mean, happen yeah. to be. Your, right. your, your role's not about your color, skin color particularly. Ali, were you cast colorblind? Uh, the the breakdown said any ethnicity, but um, I don't I don't. They did not specifically say oh, we want this guy to be Indian. Interesting. So, mm -hmm. and what, what was the character's name when you auditioned? Was it given? Was the character given a name? Uh, it was. I I didn't have a name, and actually, I have a funny story about that, but I think I'll save that for a little later. Okay, you know what? I don't know what's going to cost. Do you want me to just go down? Yeah, go into it. <laughs> just in case. I, I, I wanted to bring this up because uh, on the pilot, um, 
that they didn't have a name for my character, and they said, oh, pick a name. And so I picked a name, Vikram Da Silva, which was named after two people I know, the first and last name. And once the show got picked up, they, they just... They dropped that. I don't think they even remembered that I picked that name. <laughs> and, and they called they called the character Ali Duta, which oh. Ali is a Muslim name and Duta is a Hindu name. And Ooh. this season, they actually they they called me and they said, "Hey, did we ever say your name in dialogue?" And I said, "No, you need to change the name, don't you?" And they said, "Yeah." And they sent me a list of names and they said, "Can you tell us which of these are?" And it was actually Mike Judge, the creator, who said, "Ask Ali." Ask him if any of these names and which of them are culturally appropriate for his character. And I wrote him, and he had mixed up like Hindu last names and with Muslim first names. And I wrote him, and I said, "No, you can't do this. If you want to just give him like a white name and a and a ethnic last name, as if the white name or the first excuse me the first name <laughs> is uh, is like a nickname or something or a Westernized version of his ethnic name." And they said, "No, no, no. We want it to be ethnic." So I sent them a list of names both Muslim and Hindu names, and they tried to clear the ones that they liked, and they didn't clear with the lawyers. So they came back to me and they said, can you send us another list? <laughs> so I, I made up another list of both Muslim and Hindu names and sent it to them, and finally they settled on Naveen Dutt. Uh, and, and they cared enough to ask me, someone who has a little bit of knowledge about that, about the, the culture and the, and. Um, and those worlds, and, and I really appreciate it that Mike Judge showed that sensitivity, because they didn't have to do that. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nahum Siegel Network. Follow-up question for you. The producers of Homeland recently admitted <laughs> that, you know where I'm going with this, recently admitted that they had hired people to, to dress the set in Berlin to make it look like the Middle East. And they had spray-painted graffiti on the wall, and only after they shot and released that episode did the people who did the graffiti reveal <laughs> that the meaning of the graffiti in Arabic was, Homeland is racist. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. True story, <laughs> right? So, Leo, let me turn the question over to you. Do you feel that we have progressed in our understanding, our treatment, et cetera, of diversity? Or do, well, you know where I'm going with this. Go ahead and reflect on that. Yeah, you know what? It's interesting because, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of a lot of the superhero shows that are out right now. And when I see something like The Flash, for example, when you see Iris Allen and, and that entire family, what was great about that dynamic there was that, you know, Barry Allen is, is raised uh, by a black family, but nobody says, oh, well, by the way, you know, they drew attention to the fact that they're black. They just, they put them on equal ground. And I've had this conversation with a lot of friends of mine who are both Asian and, and, and I mean, just, just you know, Asian and, and uh, Hispanic. And one of the things that, that I think we're looking for uh, in terms of diversity is that just make, don't, don't draw attention to the fact that, that we are who we are. Make us so that we're on even ground. Like, Normalcy. Like, what's that? Normalcy. Normalcy, right? Because you see something like, I mean, Ant-Man, I don't want to single it out, but Ant-Man, it was weird because... A lot of my Hispanic friends felt like, gosh, it, it just felt so like, we're, it's like, just imagine, uh, like for me as an Asian, uh, the only thing that, they, that we, we look at is like long duk dong, like that's the standard, which sucks, right? And, and, and what, I, what, what, I, what I love right now is like, I, uh, my nephews are watching Teen Beach 2 with my nieces, and uh, there's, <laughs> it's weird, but they had the, 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 the lead character, which is interesting, 
uh, he was, well, not the lead, but the, 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 the character, the, the girl fell in love with an Asian. But in the past, it would say, well, he's good looking for an Asian. But instead, I mean, now they're just more like, hey, he's just a good looking guy. So that's really what we we're looking for. It, it's just kind of like this even ground. Um, and, I, and I've worked in animation, and, and my brother, I, like I said, I mentioned, he created Johnny Bravo. And he a non-Asian character. What's that? A non-Asian character. Well, what's interesting is Bravo, see, that's our middle name, is Bravo. So my brother's <laughs> name is Ephraim Giovanni Bravo Partible, or Partible. And so his Giovanni, yeah, we had to use, you know, the anglicize everything, you know how it is, right? <laughs> we anglicize everything, so... So, so uh, then Gorfinkel's really Gorfinkel. Right, exactly. <laughs> Do it the other way. And, and so my brother's name is, in the middle name is, you know, uh, Giovanni Bravo. So his real name is Johnny Bravo, actually. Uh, but he yeah. stuck in key elements that were very, quote, Asian-Filipino in, in, in the... In, you know, in Johnny Bravo, and so that, that that's kind of a way to, to kind of like even things out in, in a way. And uh, and for me also as an artist, it's interesting because I was trained. Um, my mentor was Nestor Adondo when I first got in. He was a great one of the great Filipino artists working in DC and Marvel. And it's weird because I saw an article that said, you know, it's like it's amazing how you know these the Filipino artists are just starting to come into their own. I'm thinking. Oh, These guys, yeah, right. Yeah, oh it was like all of a sudden we we got forgotten because there's a, a nobody looked at Mamparella. Oh right, God. exactly. All these guys were, were Filipinos way, way yeah. back in the nineteen early nineteen seventies, and, and they Wait, were my heroes. Was that? Was that? Right, exactly. But that's what the article. Oh. See, the article all of a sudden. And so to to, to answer your question, it's weird because there is progress. Uh, and I'm I seeing it in t-shirts. I don't think in comics yeah. it's at all a problem. But in film, in film Asian, is it, yeah. Asian in comics is, yeah. is not any different than anything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gender yeah. in comics is more of an issue. Right. But That's for acting, anything that appears on film definitely yeah. races more of a thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. well so, go, I mean, that's, that, to me, the question that's made by your question is when you say, have we progressed? Like, who's we? Society in general. That, you can't. You cannot make that generalization. Yeah. The people in this room? We've progressed. <laughs> you know, the people on the top floor of whatever building in Manhattan who are making decisions about the media we consume, they haven't. Okay, so I'm no, glad haven't. you say that. Let me read you something over here. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, I want the comic book artists to reflect on this next from their point of view, and I'll okay. get to you in a second. I'm quoting three articles here. On the one hand, Darnell Hunt, co-author of the Hollywood Diversity Report and head of UCLA's Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies, said that the findings of this study can be summed up in two words, diversity sells. From Time Magazine, May 2014, the market has spoken. In prime time and during the commercial breaks, you can no longer just assume that America won't go for this. America has already gone there. And it takes nothing away from anyone to say that this progress has been made not so much with passionate moral arguments than with entertaining TV that generates money. On the other hand, this from Fortune magazine, December 2014. Internal salary data allegedly hacked from Sony Pictures Entertainment appears to reveal that the entertainment giant's highest paid executives are overwhelmingly white and male. The uniformity in the executive ranks could be one reason Hollywood producers, in particular, have a heavy white male presence. Quote, it's such a white male corporate culture, it becomes the creative corporate culture, and that affects the stories told. End quote, said Stephen Witte, chairman of the New York Film Critic Circle and film critic of the Star Ledger, New Jersey Star Ledger. Quote, you're setting the tone and the parameters of what people are comfortable with right at the top. 
Witty is amongst those, end quote. Witty is amongst those who argue that the lack of diversity is bad for business. I want to turn this over now to our artists here and ask them to reflect on what we're talking about here. Has the culture in general developed, evolved? Has the office on top evolved? And in particular, when you're creating your comics, do you go into it saying, I need to create something that reflects my personal experience and make sure to put that in there? Or are you going into your storytelling saying, I want to tell a great story that will be interesting first and foremost, and whatever organically makes sense for that story, I will follow. Ashley first. Um, so this is like a multifaceted question, so I'm going to attack the angle of the seems the shortest first. Um, thank you. So the people in power, the people uh, up top, whatever building that's making these decisions uh, about what we consume, the media, <clears throat> I think they're evolving, but it's not by their personal choice. Because think about it, they're comfortable. They have no reason to want to evolve. You know, Their lives are nothing like our lives. Um, they're distracted. You know, They're sheltered. I feel like and I don't want to generalize everybody of that nature because that isn't fair, but that's the majority of them, I feel. Um, if they are evolving or progressing, uh, it's because they're after the money. They see the merit in listening to the audience uh, because ultimately the audience is going to win. Um, for instance, when you piggyback off of uh, Final Fantasy VII, that game came out in 97. Fans have been asking for a remake uh, for almost 20 years now. It's, it's 2015. It's been 18 years. They're just now announcing a, a remake. Square Enix did not want to honor what the audience wanted, but they had to eventually. That's why I feel like it's happening with media across the board, gaming, uh, uh, movies, just basically all types of entertainment. So that wraps up my answer for that part of the question. As far as my personal experience, when I began working on Millennial War, that, like I said, is the action fantasy story. Um, so this, so it started in 2004 when I finally uh, premiered it at Wizard World Chicago 2006. I met a few other uh, black artists. To me, people are people. I don't care where you come from. Um, it is what it is. But other people, uh, you can only control what you do. You can't control other people. And so other people would make a big deal about my art, which happened to be, uh, is very you know diverse with the characters and the cast um, because to piggyback off of what Joyce was saying I wasn't thinking about uh, should I promote my characters with this and that angle to me I wanted people to notice their personality I wanted them to be able to relate to them you know and I joined this forum and I received a lot of uh, flack for not having enough quote-unquote black characters and I did have black characters, but also had, um, I wouldn't technically call them white, you know, they definitely weren't black. I just didn't put any thought behind it, you know, they, they just existed. But long story short, I just told the audience, like, look, this is my money, this is my creation, I do what I want. If you don't like it, make your own book. <laughs> like, let me be an artist, let me be expressive. Okay? Yeah, I, 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 find, I find stuff like that just as racist as somebody telling me, well, why aren't you working on a race it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> You're Asian, you should be doing exactly what this pigeonhole 
Like, you should be able to draw Captain America, Captain America Black right now, but I mean, you should be able to draw <laughs> it's all whatever you want to. You I got don't a, have I to. It's all about yeah, a good story. I got a comment on that one. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I need to cover with him on it, so. <laughs> oh, do you read me? Um, to, well, to, to reiterate what, what, what Ash was saying, um, as, as an artist, as a, as a cartoonist, as a creator, um, I'll be frank, I mean, I, I, I create for myself. I, I, when I, I pulled out my, my Sonambula comic up to put up on top here, because uh, this is my most personal project so far. Guns of Blazing is, is a project I do in collaboration with a dear friend of mine who happens to be a white guy from North Carolina, but that's another story <laughs> altogether. But um, well, when I do my, my monster here, uh, Sonambulos, uh, uh, I approach it with the things I know, I, the things that I grew up with, the things that make me who I am. I, I um, when I, I was, I started out in Marvel at DC doing, you know, the usual colored, pen, you know, comic book pencil sort of stuff, you know, like like any good hired gun would do at the time. But when it came to doing my own thing, my own personal thing, the, the thing that would speak for myself, I I, I I turned to my culture. I turned to my point of origin. I, I went to Lucha Libre. Lucha Libre. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but in, in Mexican culture, it's 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 like. Um, they're mythic. They're, they they wear masks. They're like they're like living, breathing superheroes, and and they they keep their anonymity, you know, uh, for for the same reasons that the usual comic book characters do, is to protect the people they love, and and you know that masked wrestler that could be your dad, that could be your sister, that could be the guy across the street who sells milk, you know. I reach for the things that made that made sense to me, the the things that that uh, mattered the most to me. I. I uh, I, I brought this one uh, personally because it's a collection of short stories. Of, he's, a, by the way, he's a mass Mexican wrestler detective who can read people's dreams. Yes, it's nutty and, and eclectic, but the reason I, pro I chose this book is because each story takes place in Mexico. In this one, he's on—he's like a—he's you know PI guy doing you know crazy monsters that go bump in the night, kind of weekly monster stories and everything. But each one takes place in in, in the old country, right? And uh, because of that, there's a certain resonance, a certain flavor that I wanted to capture. It's it's basically my love of Mexico and everything that 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 is is endearing to me. And I wanted to make sure that um, I. I Actually, I wanted to make sure that I, I shared it with the people that and, and the audience that that are even remotely interested in such things. So when I when I create, it's it, it's mostly for a, a celebration, if you will, of who I am and where I came from. And if I find any audience out there willing or interested to in, in you know taking a look, then there you have it. I mean that that's my sense of diversity. You know, to so at least share. So now, what if Fox wants to uh, do it with John Cena? Does it have to be Mexico? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you mention that. Believe it or not, it's it's not a question of of, of race. You're gonna laugh. Uh, when I was pitching this bad boy a few years ago um, as a feature film at, at WB, uh, it, the, the first thing they want to do, well, yeah, it's great. Uh, there's a great market happening in in, in uh, Mexican culture and this and that. But can we lose the mask? Yeah, <laughs> had nothing to do with skin, nothing, no point of origin. It was the hood. If you're gonna get Johnson, if you can get um, uh, Tom Cruise or some big major star, the first thing they want to do is they want to. I, I know, but I, I'm throwing things out, Joyce, just just to be facetious. They'll just change the spelling. Yeah, yeah. So so it, it was a different beast, a different uh, a, a form of, of, of diversity altogether. Right, say diversity altogether. They wanted to ace the hood like as quickly as possible. The closest thing they got to being made into a feature film, shockingly enough, and it was like uh, right after I pitched it to Nickelodeon too, because I was doing time there as a storyboard artist, was uh, Jack Jack Black's opus, uh, uh, Nacho Libre, and and I remember the last thing that uh, Nick told me at the time was that uh, can you lose the masses? No, the whole point of the matter is that the moment you take the mask, 
you lose the whole of, of mysticism of what makes the character who he is. Uh, once once that happens, it, it's not about the, the character Sonambo or El did Santo you, or Mimascas. It would be about it will be about the star that, that is starring it. Did you mention V for Vendetta? Um, that happened uh, two years later. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is kind of ironic because it was probably the same producer that must have talked. You know, I got this a great idea. You know, we should do another comic book character, but you know, this time we could. Yeah. Uh, um, there lies the irony. Son of a <laughs> Yeah, him too. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org. Barry, before we get to you, I just want to throw in a question over here. Um, I'm taking advantage of my position as a moderator. In my, As you people do. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by you people? <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Phil. <laughs> so in my graphic novel, Michael Midas Champion, I had an interesting conundrum. It made sense for the protagonist to be a working-class white guy. That was the story that I was going to tell. Not something from my own particular background, but that was the story. Then I had to come up with who was going to be the best friend. And I went through this process in my mind of trying to decide, well, is it going to be somebody of color, or is it going to be somebody who's Caucasian? And I went back and forth. Well, I should make it the black guy. But then, no, that's the reverse stereotype because the best friend is always the black guy. And that means he's going to have to get killed. <laughs> well, you've got to also have the urban perspective coming in to let people know that you're, that you're, that you're with it. Right, you're exactly. down. So uh, I just want to throw it out there to you folks on the panel. Is there such a thing that I think this just came up? We're trying to define it as anti-diversity or reverse diversity, where you're trying to push things so far in one direction that you actually do diversity a disservice. Ashley, you're nodding. Go ahead. Well, that applies to everything. I feel anything that can be progressive or good for everyone, sometimes people mean well and they want to spread a good message, but if they try too hard, then you can like really alienate people. You don't want to be preachy. You know, I feel like my personal ma mantra is, you know, put what you feel should be out there and then leave it at that, you know, because you don't want to alienate people. That's, that's basically it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be the fact that me being African-American is, you know, all my characters have to be African-American characters. Or I have a very diverse background, and I didn't want to feel that, like, just because I'm having, and anybody coming to me to question my, you know, my blackness, and everything because I have a wide, a wide range of Afrocentric, Eurocentric, uh, Asian, Latino, uh, African American characters and everything. You want to question my blackness and everything because not all my characters across the board are African American. Step up, Playboy. The thing is, is that I, I, I don't have a qualm about that because I, I'm reflecting what society is, number one. There's a very diverse society. And the second we start pigeonholing people into their own ridiculous stereotypes, and stereotypes exist, I do not fit the stereotype, all right? And there's a lot of people that have to, before you throw your uh, preconceived notions and your, and your negative uh, labels and what have you, the second I enter a room because I look a certain way, that you need to question yourself because I want to embrace, I like who likes me. So let me jump in over here and, and address this to Barry. Uh, thank you, Abdul. Um, Barry, uh, speaking for the oppressed Jewish folks here, <laughs> you have actually taken what Abdul has been talking about and kind of reversed it in that you are using a very specific kind of 
character who wears their identity uh, well, on their sleeve. It's hard to talk about a young girl like this. And made it the story point off of which you're building your entire world. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to go in that direction? And also, whether or not you think it has helped or hurt your property. Okay. Um, so my comic is about a 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girl who wants to fight monsters, and she lives in an isolated town where pretty much everyone is an Orthodox Jew. Um, why did I want to do that? I just wanted to do a fun action-adventure comic that I'd actually be interested in reading. And, you know, I thought of doing two white guys who are really muscular and punch each other a lot, and they both live in Manhattan. Uh, but then I was worried that might have been done already. Um, so a lot of my favorite comics are by cartoonists who are drawing on their own cultural backgrounds for inspiration. Usagi Ojimbo by Stan Sakai. Love and Rockets, of course. There's a bunch. And so I kind of wanted to try and take that approach, but, you know, using my Jewish culture as a basis. Has it helped or hurt me? Well, I think it's helped me in that uh, it gives me an attention-setting tagline. Uh, there aren't a lot of comics about 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girls out there, and the very few that exist tend to be a little bit dreary, like, it's about Judaism. We're going to talk about the Holocaust now. And it's like, no, there is more to Judaism than getting killed by Germans, I swear. Um, and uh, it's heard in that uh, there's a tendency, you were talking about who's on the top floor of the building before. My part of the industry, because there are different buildings and different top floors, and I don't know a thing about who's on the top floor at Marvel in D.C., but I suspect they don't have great taste in comics. Um, in, the, in the bookstore market, the people on the top floor, uh, well, you bring it to an agent, and the agent says, well, this is great, but publishers will never touch it. And you bring it to the publishers, and they say, oh, I love this, but, you know, librarians would never go to it for it. And then you bring it to librarians, and they're like, oh, my God, I want to buy this. Why won't the publishers do this? And... It becomes a cycle where there are all these gatekeepers, and every single one of the gatekeepers swears that they want to publish the diverse material, but the other gatekeepers won't let them. I just wanted to say, I, the cover I just finished from Marvel was for uh, Miss Marvel, and it was a Muslim superhero, and black Captain America, and a female <laughs> Thor, and uh, Miles Morales Spider-Man, so I... There, you are, you're completely some, right. Yeah, there is some movement and some progress. There. And yeah, I agree. Like, There's a huge market that is obviously not being uh, catered to. And they should be. Like, There's a huge Latino market in, in America that's being completely missed in almost all media, uh, except by self-generated, you know, like Telemundo. Is it necessary to have somebody from that actual background to work on I don't know how like I that? could be black and Muslim and uh, a woman with cancer and uh, Latino superhero, Latino and black superhero. I mean, it's like, especially, I do work for hire. I don't necessarily create stuff that's completely independent of other input. Right. And, and uh, I've never drawn me into a comic. I've never worked on... Uh, I mean, you know, there's no stories about weirdo chicks that wanted to do comics when no women wanted to do comics. Kickstarter. Well, no, I don't want to. I don't. 
I like drawing superheroes. It made me so happy. When I got, you know, it's like uh, I got God. I recently got to draw Jubilee, and I was like, oh, and that was about as close as I got. But I, I don't, I don't feel this. Um, we're not at, it, at least in comics, and I know that there's a very separate thing that happens in film where you're either the girlfriend of the guy they almost made gay in the film or the TV or whatever, and uh, or it, like Asian women have like you either do martial arts. <laughs> or you're the best friend, or you're the girlfriend of the guy that was almost gay. Um, and and in comics, it's really my gender has been a huge issue. My race has never been an issue. So. Leo, go ahead, jump in. You, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Leo, one second. We have about three minutes left, and I want to give enough time for everybody to have a last word that I want to be able to respond to this. I'm so sorry. You know, we could spend literally, we should have a conference all day about <laughs> just this. Funny you mentioned that, Gorge. Ash and I, we, we did a, a show just about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It's called the Soul Con in, uh, in uh, Columbus, Ohio. It was a very enlightening, uh, 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 pretty much all the panels are enlightening, not to mention just, just uh, multifaceted. multifaceted. It was a, a Hispanic-based Hispanic uh, convention. Uh, African-American, and uh, just basically, uh, and it, was, it was being held at the same time as uh, the CXC uh, of, of another mainstream convention happening like just across from town, and it felt a little weird because it was it was almost like uh, did we or did we unintentionally like uh, uh, segregate ourselves from the mainstream? Uh, <laughs> Although uh, I will tell you, it's not half as weird as walking into this building and seeing Stanley's Kamikaze next to the obesity. Company. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, am I at the wrong conference? <laughs> oh. Oh. Go ahead, yeah. I was going to say really quick, uh, you know what's interesting is uh, in terms of what we're talking about, are we allowed to do certain kinds of uh, themes or whatever if we're not uh, that character or that person or ethnicity? Uh, I have a friend of mine named Roddy Del Carmen, he's Filipino, and he, is, he, is, he had co-directed uh, uh, Inside Out, and so he, you know, the, the film. And so you, you know, you don't, you look at these films and you think, wait, I mean, one of the directors is, is Asian, Filipino. And uh, and I think it's, it comes down to the universal universality of, of the characters, you know, because I because uh, he put in a lot of his his experiences as growing up in San Francisco, like a lot of us who who are Filipino or Asian, we we went to San Francisco, and and that was our experience. Whatever you know, the moving and everything else. If you've seen the movie, um, uh, growing up in the Bay Area, that was our experience in the Bay Area. And uh, what's interesting, I, I think, for me. Uh, for us, we um, when I see a character like Superman, Superman or uh, there's 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 three people: Superman, Michael Jackson, and Elvis. That <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That for 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 especially for Filipinos, like that could be us or or Batman because that's that's a very Asian self-made self-made man. I, you know, I did it by my bootstraps. Superman looks like me. I I could I could be Superman. I could be Batman. I could be Michael Jackson. I love Michael Jackson, I mean, or and Elvis. Elvis could have been Indian. He, well, actually, in, in all those movies, he was Indian, he was Mexican, he was all these different people. And I think that's really the key, is the relatability of the characters so that it, it's universal in, in that way. So I think I think um, when you said you were doing... Yeah, Ms. Marvel's like, numbers are huge. Yeah, she's like this right. teenage Muslim girl. Yeah. Like, you know, there's no... There's no um, it's not like she has only Muslim adventures with Muslim friends. Like she yeah. has adventures with friends. Right. Right. I love the, the, the I Jewish mean. super friends character who was always right. Oh, yeah. right. You know, I'm wearing the Star of David and I'm fighting for the state of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I do. And by the way, I have a hairy chest too. Yeah. And, you know, and I love you know. 
Jimmy Olsen on Supergirl. Like this guy, you know, oh, yeah. like, uh, excuse me, James. James Olsen, right? James Olsen. I mean, I'm sorry, I have to cut you off. Okay. The door is opening. All that. Uh, ten seconds down the row, everybody gets to tell their Twitter address or their Facebook, whatever, so we can continue the conversation online. Joyce. Uh, Art of Joyce Chen. Ali Mauji, nine one seven. Just Google me, Leo Partible, uh, at uh, Facebook. I have a Facebook page and I have a SoundCloud. So also a musician. Oh, fantastic. JewishCartoon.com. AHRVisions.com. AshleyAWoods.com. Oh, it's gracious. Uh, a Facebook page, Rafael uh, Navarro, uh, and also a, an Instagram, uh, which is uh, Rafael underscore Navarro 007. <laughs> Hereville.com, or, you know, just Google Jewish Girl Comic. It'll be the only thing that comes up. <laughs> At Phil Lamar. Two L's in the middle, two R's at the end. We are really want to know what your question next year. Was. Go ahead, Ashley, one last thing. Okay, we're going to do this again next year or maybe even at lunch. So thank you very much. Comments, questions, or you just want to fetch? Go to facebook.com slash the world according to Gore. That wraps up the Race and Diversity Panel from Los Angeles's very own Stan Lee Kamikaze Expo. Thank you to all the panelists for sharing your time, your talent, and your perspectives. I know that I found it interesting and I learned a thing or two. And it also got me thinking about the intersection of different ethnicities and races in music, in particular the crossover with Jewish music. This is, after all, a show on the Nachum Siegel Network. So I thought it would be appropriate to share an article from a few years ago from the New York Jewish Week entitled, For Blacks and Jews, a Musical Gray Area. It reads, in 1958, when Johnny Mathis was recording an album of African-American spirituals in homage to his black mother, he included a seemingly odd song, Kol Nidre, the centerpiece of the Yom Kippur service and perhaps the holiest of all Jewish prayers. Why? Quote, spiritual music is all about emotion, end quote, Mathis told the Jewish Week in a phone interview from his home in Los Angeles. Quote, if you can bring the emotion to the music, then that's what you're looking for, end quote. He added, quote, Kol Nidre is just a big, big emotional outpouring, end quote. Mathis first heard cantorial music growing up in San Francisco, where many of his friends were Jewish. And when it came time to record an album of spiritual music, he could not resist including a version of Kol Nidre. Many of the backup singers and producers at his label, Columbia, were Jewish, and he asked them for help tracking down recordings of the prayer so he could rehearse. They brought in several, giving him pointers, too. Quote, everyone had an idea about my Hebrew pronunciation, he said, but in the end, he relied on his musical instincts. Quote, it was done in a rather innocent way. I wasn't even aware that what I was singing was Hebrew and not Yiddish, end quote. The recorded version was featured on the 1958 album, Good Night, Dear Lord, one of the few Mathis albums that did not sell well. And few would have remembered it had the Jewish nonprofit record label, the Idelson Society, not reissued it in 2010. On a compilation of black musicians singing Jewish songs titled Black Sabbath, The Secret Musical History of Black-Jewish Relations, 
Mathis is one of 15 musicians performing Jewish songs, few of them ever heard. Others include Nina Simone singing Eretz Zavat Chalav, an Israeli folk song, Billie Holiday performing My Yiddish Mama, and Cab Calloway doing Ota Dize, a spoof on Shtetl Life. Black musicians did not necessarily sing Jewish music because they felt the mutual connection or shared sense of suffering. They often did so to entertain a Jewish audience or a Jewish producer. Quote, not every version of cross-cultural appropriation is necessarily a testament to solidarity, end quote, said Josh Kahn, a co-founder of the Idelson Society, although he added that Black Sabbath points to moments of celebration and identification as much as it does to the fraught relations. A case in point is the Yiddish song Keli Keli, based on King David's Psalm 22. Before it became a staple for Black musicians, from Paul Robeson to Duke Ellington, it was standard fare for Jewish musicians on the Lower East Side of New York. Close proximity lent itself to music appropriation, and at the same time the Jews were reworking black music, in short, the history of Broadway where Jewish songwriters riffed on black spirituals, black musicians began performing Jewish songs. Sometimes it was out of respect, other times out of naivete. But sometimes it was done with spite. That is why Ethel Waters, for whom Kaylee Kaylee was a staple, could say both that the song, quote, tells the tragic story of the Jews as much as one song can. I felt I was telling the story of my own race, too. End quote. But also, quote, Jewish people in every town seem to love the idea of me singing their song. Though the complicated, often painful backstory is discussed in detail on the album's liner notes, as well as the website belonging to Idelson Society, some argue the essential product, a music album, cannot do the topic justice. There's a real breakdown between the liner notes and the music that the producers include, said Jeffrey Melnick, a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and author of A Right to Sing the Blues, African Americans, Jews, and American Popular Song. Quote, in the liner notes, they're trying to get at the complicated nature of it but the music itself doesn't really bear that out, end quote. The opening paragraph discusses the case of the black blues singer Alberta Hunter doing a version of Ich bin dich Zifolid, a popular Yiddish song. Even stranger, she sang it on the nationally televised Dick Cavett show in 1979. On the show, Cavett asked her about the origins of her song. After telling him that she learned it on a trip to Jerusalem, she mentioned a story about Sophie Tucker, a renowned Jewish blues singer in her own right who also used to perform in blackface. Tucker had once asked to borrow one of Hunter's own songs, but Tucker had her black maid send the request, and Hunter refused, recalling to Cavett, quote, Sophie, as good as she was, would never sing the blues like an African-American. And that's not boasting. You see, Sophie Tucker hasn't suffered like we've suffered, end quote. Many of the songs have more benign histories, of course. And it is often the case that what to one black performer felt like appeasement to a Jewish audience, to another felt like an expression of mutual understanding, or perhaps the origins of some songs were purely accidental. For instance, Louis Armstrong's famous song, Heebie Jeebies, one of the earliest known recordings of scat singing, was said to be inspired by Jewish prayers. Armstrong once worked for a Lithuanian Jewish family in New Orleans. The Karnatskis are believed to have bought him his first trumpet and later told Cab Calloway that his scat singing was inspired by, as Calloway remembered it, 
quote, the Jews rockin', by that he meant davening, end quote. The album itself has its own backstory as well. It starts with the discovery of Mathis's Kol Nidre a few years back. Roger Bennett, another co-founder of the Adelson Society, said that he was sent the album after the success of their earlier reissue, Bagels and Bongos, a recording of Latin music played in the Catskills by the forgotten Jewish musician Irving Fields. Bagels and Bongos made the label something of a media darling, and the attention resulted in record collectors around the world shipping in rare vinyl records by the dozen. Quote, we had hundreds and hundreds of albums sent to us when we started the archives, end quote, Bennett said. The organization received Mathis's 1958 recording not long after, but it wanted to say something new about the find. After doing research, Idelson's founders felt that the story of Jews appropriating black music was well known, but the story of blacks performing Jewish music was not. But it was Mathis who set them off. And when the founders called Mathis to see if he'd give the rights to re-release Kol Nidre, he did not hesitate. Quote, I was absolutely over the moon when these four gentlemen contacted me, end quote, Mathis said. Quote, I had them come over to my house and they explained to me what they were doing. It reminded me of another part of my life, he added. I was just thrilled, end quote. That's the end of the Jewish Week article entitled, For Blacks and Jews, a Musical Gray Area. And now I present to you one of my finds after having read this article. Here's Louis Armstrong singing probably the first Jewish folk song that I ever heard and probably ever learned on The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org.
Satchmo on jmmam.org. Hey, Nahum, am I the first person in the long history, long storied history of JM and the AM to ever put those two together? Satchmo, Louis Armstrong on JM and the AM. I think I may have just made a little bit of history here. But if not, I'm sure Nahum will set me straight. Folks, we're wrapping up another edition of The World According to Gorf. A pleasure, as always, to have you as part of our listening audience. I urge you to stick around for more amazing programming on the Nachum Siegel Network, 24-6, as we like to say here. Hey, folks, if you want to catch more Gorf, and who doesn't, except perhaps for my family, but besides them, go to jewishcartoon.com www.jewishcartoon.com for your weekly dose of Jewish humor. For my listeners who are associated with Jewish summer camps, now is the time to think about bringing the Jewish Cartoon Workshop to your summer camp. Contact me at gorf at jewishcartoon.com or check out the details at www.jewishcartoon.com slash workshop. And hey, if you're having a simcha, a bar, a bat mitzvah, a wedding, an event, a fundraising, shindig, you want Pella. Pella is the Jewish glee, providing the engagement entertainment of a band, but with only their voices. Pella Singers performs all your favorite songs in Hebrew, English, and more with youthful energy and a uniquely personable style. Their happy clientele includes the U.S. president, twice the prime minister of Israel, and sports stadiums, concerts, rallies, events, parties, celebrations, and resorts all over the world. You have a Passover program that you are part of? Recommend Pella Singers to be your interactive, engaging entertainment, all with just their voices. PellaProductions.com P-E-L-L-A Productions.com. Once again, that brings us to the end of The World According to Gorf. This is Gorf, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and I look forward to speaking to you again 
next month with another amazing adventure from my travels around the country and indeed around the world, meeting and talking to interesting Jewish people and or about Jewish subjects. Until then, let me wish you Shalom.